Well, I don't know if you've ever used the phrase, when in Bangor, do what the Bangorians do. Some of you may not like to do that if you're from, not from Bangor or if you're in Australia on a holiday, when in Australia, do what the Aussies do. Because we've used that phrase before, haven't we? Well, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. Well, I've tried to work out where that little phrase comes from. And apparently it's a proverb attributed to St. Ambrose. The proverb means that it's best to follow the traditions or customs of a place visited. St. Monica and her son, St. Augustine, discovered that Saturday was observed as a fast day in Rome where they planned to visit. However, it was not a fast day where they lived in Milan. So they consulted St. Ambrose, who said, when I'm here in Milan, I do fast on Saturday. But when I'm in Rome, I do fast on Saturday. When I'm here in Milan, I do not fast on Saturday. But when I go to Rome, I do fast on a Saturday. But as Paul writes his letter to the church at Rome, what he's saying is the total opposite. When you live in Rome, don't do as the Romans do. When you live in Rome, do as Christ does. When you live in Rome, be like that little submarine immersed in the culture and in the climax and in the context of Rome. But as you live in Rome, ultimately you are living in Christ. When in Rome, don't do as the Romans do. When in Rome, live as Christ has called you to live. And that's where we are in this second half of the book of Romans. In Romans 1 to 11, Paul has been marching us through all of the great doctrines of what it means to be called by Christ, adopted by Christ, forgiven by Christ, reconciled by Christ. Then this glorious doxology in chapter 11. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is the mystery of our great God and his plan of salvation that he would bring Jew and Gentile together into this one body of Christ. And so now he writes to us to tell us what it looks like for us to live a life dedicated to Christ. When in Rome, don't do as the Romans do, do as Christ does. When in Bangor, do as Christ would have you to do. Because last week as we read Romans 12, 1 and 2 together, and it's talking to us about offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable. This is your, your spiritual worship. You might say, but, but Johnny, what does it look like? For me to be renewed in my mind, what does it look like in the church? What does it look like in the body of Christ? What does it look like in society? What does it look like in response to the government? What does it look like to lots of the things that are available to us in this society? Can I eat that? Can I drink this? What does this all mean in Paul? Paul's starting to help us. One writer says, we move now from self-denial in the spiritual worship of God, which flows to self-surrender to the will of God, and from self-surrender flows selfless service. From self-denial to then a surrender to the will of God, and then that flows a selfless service to the work of God. So we're going to look at church life. 
this morning. We looked at the big theme of, of Christian living as to what it looks like to take all these great truths of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Last week to go, well, this faith in Christ has got to make a manifestation in our footsteps. So what does it look like now to live for Jesus Christ in the body of Christ, in church life? Well, the first thing we need to think about is what we think. Because as you think, so you are. So consider your thinking in Romans 12, verse 3. For by this grace, Paul says, given to me, I say to every one of you not to think, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Look at these opening words, these humble thoughts. For by the grace given to me, this is passive in the original text. Paul is saying there was a time when I was on the Damascus road and I thought horrendous thoughts about Christians. I used to kill Christians. I used to persecute Christians. I used to hate those who said that they were followers of the way. Why? Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless they come through me. So in the early church, many of them called themselves the people of the way. He hated the way. That's what he thought about. His thoughts were captivated with the killing of Christians. But he says, by this grace that arrested me, this grace that transformed me, it transformed not just my heart and my soul, but my thinking this grace given to the Christian. As a recipient of God's amazing grace, Paul then says, as an apostle of Christ and a fellow Christian, Christians need to think differently in the church. He says to everyone among you, well, in this church there were converted Jews and there were converted Gentiles. Now, it's likely that many of the converted Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah may have had a superiority complex. Why? Because in the early chapters of Deuteronomy, it says that Israel was God's chosen people. Out of all the nations of the earth, he chose little Israel to shower his grace and his blessings upon them. And so when they got into church, there may have been this unspoken or even spoken superiority complex that we were God's original chosen people. And well, you Gentiles, you've just been grafted into to us who's really the tree. So there was strife and conflict in the church. And so Paul has to write, look at verse three, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. You see, this is part of the original sin of being a human. Lucifer in Isaiah 12, 13, and 14 was a star. He was a prince in heaven. But he wanted not just to be subservient to God. He wanted to be God, and so he became lifted up in his heart. And he says, I will, and I will, and I will. And so he was cast out of heaven. And so he comes slithering up to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, follow me. You can be God. You can have your way. You can have your kingdom come. And so this pride, this inherent sin deep down within every one of us is what is the destroying force in our lives, church life, and society. And so this is the manifestation of it. Paul says, I can see this happening. You're thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. 
You see this word pride with literally an eye smack bang in the middle of this little world. It kills friendships. It kills families. And it kills church fellowships. Pride in the church is a killer. It's been that way from Isaiah 14. It was that way in Genesis 3. And we see this manifested in this ragtag bag of 12 disciples that Jesus comes to follow him. Uneducated, they're ordinary men, but Jesus is going to take them into his school of discipleship. Do you remember that moment with James and John, the two sons of thunder? They send their mom out over the top and say, you know, would you go and speak to Jesus? See, this kingdom he keeps talking about. Mommy, do you think I could be chancellor of the exchequer? and the foreign secretary. I don't know if they'd want it today in the United Kingdom, but, but that's what they wanted. Mom, Dad, our, Jesus keeps on talking about this kingdom that is going to come. Do you think we could be the top dogs? It was deep and hidden, even amongst the twelve. And even as Jesus is ending his teaching time with him, he's got the 12 in the upper room. And what are they talking about? They've made their way up the Jericho Road, up to Jerusalem. And Jesus has already sorted out James and John's mother about where they should sit in the kingdom of God, that the Son of Man came to seek and to serve. But still the disciples haven't got And then they're in the upper room discussing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They hadn't got it. They were still thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. Why should they have been thinking? They should be thinking about what Paul wrote in Philippians 2 verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God. What does that mean was? He added humanity to his divinity. And he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is how we should think to think like Christ. One writer says we live in a culture where we have not become alcoholics, but egoholics. We're obsessed with ourselves. We've even turned our phones on ourselves. It made me think of Mr. Simon Kyle. Some of you know him. The English television, music, and talent competition judge from The X Factor. Now think about how his words grind against the self-esteem gods and goddesses of our age. I found a few excerpts of his greatest hits. To some of the contestants, he said, Vanessa, if anyone ever asked me in my life what my nightmares look and sound like, I'm going to refer to this. He said to another person, last year I described someone as being the worst singer in America. I think you're possibly the worst singer in the world. To another person, if your lifeguard duties were as good as your singing, a lot of people would be drowning right now. Now, some of you love Simon, and some of you can't stand him. But so far, he hasn't been cancelled. And let's be honest. He tells many of these singers the truth, but it grinds, doesn't it, against the self-esteem 
gods and goddesses of our culture. They, perhaps from a young age, people were in a silly way saying, you're a great singer, you're a great singer, you can be whatever you want to be. And then they meet Simon. They get the harsh truth. And this church at Rome was getting the harsh truth about ultimately who they were in Christ. They needed to have humble thoughts. And then how else should they be thinking of themselves? They should have sober thoughts. Look at verse 3. But to think with sober judgment, sensible judgment, uh, reasonable judgment. They were not to be intoxicated with their own views, whether they were a Jew or a Gentile, with their own opinions, with their own feelings. They were then not to assemble into a mass around themselves in church life in Rome, a little group of people who will listen to all of their thoughts and in a sense, massage their thoughts. And yes, that's really awful. No, 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 no. Think of yourself with sober, sober judgment. But let me also say this. The Bible doesn't tell us to wallow in low self-esteem and self-pity, but rather the Bible commands us to base our thinking in the church on what God's Word says about us rather than the world. Because the Word of Christ actually tells us a, a much better story, that we are worse off than we ever imagined, and yet more loved than we ever imagined. One writer says there's a difference between self-esteem and Christ-centered esteem. Because when we think this morning about what God thinks of us, He loves us. He's chosen us. He's forgiven us. He's ransomed us. He, he's taken all of our sin, and He's hurled it into the very depths of the ocean. He's taken your sin and mine, if you're a Christian, and He's separated as far as the east is from the west. As a father loves us, how much more He loves you. Oh, you have little faith. If you're a Christian this morning, don't worry about self-esteem. Worry about what Christ thinks of you. We don't need to know more about how great we are, but we need to know more about how great He is. That's how we should think in the church. How does this honor and glorify and worship our Father rather than how does it please us? And Paul continues here, verse 3, it's each in accordance to the measure of faith that God has assigned. He's starting to let us know that there's different gifts in the body. You can't just have your little kingdom over here and think that everybody in the church is going to be subservient to your little kingdom and your little program and to your little department because God has arranged all the departments. He's arranged all the parts of the body wonderfully. He's the designer. He's the conductor. He's the developer. So this is our thinking. But what, secondly, should our belonging look like? We'll look at verse 4. Paul starts to help us get on the move. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we're many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Two very simple things about the body of Christ. You belong to one another, and you belong to Jesus Christ. It's simple, hard to do in practice. You belong to one another, and you belong to Jesus Christ. Look at this belonging to each other. See, today the body of Christ is made up of 
millions and millions and millions of people. This day, across the world, depending on their time zones, there's literally millions, and some say maybe two billion Christians in this world. Men and women and boys and girls from lots of different tribes, lots of different tongues, lots of different nations who are meeting as the global body of Christ. You are one body, though you are millions, if not billions, of different parts. Paul says this all over the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, I'll read it to you. For just as the body is one and has many members. Ephesians 4, verse 4, read this. You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by his Spirit. He's speaking about the mysterious body of Christ. But look at verse 4 in Romans 12. And the members do not all have the same function. Isn't that good? When you think about the whole body of Christ, think about all the body parts. Isn't it wonderful that we're not two billion eyes? Some of you have lovely eyes. But imagine two billion eyes rolling all over the world. We'd be pretty good at seeing things, but not very good at going anywhere. Think about how your own body works. Say you might be thinking, now you know you'd never think like this. This is a really boring sermon. How am I going to get out of here? It starts in your head. This is really boring. And then your, your, your mind starts to communicate it to your body, and you start to anticipate, well, how can I get out of my row? Because I need to lift my bag, and I need to lift my phone, and I need to make as little noise as possible. And so you stand up, and you start to navigate your way out. How? Because you use your legs, and then you might need to tap somebody on the leg to get past, so you use your arms. And what started in your head, a terrible thought like that, became manifest in how you, you mocked and you moved and you needed lots of different parts of your body to make that thought a reality. So it is in the body of Christ. When we have God's Word and He begins to speak to us as a church about where He wants us to go and what He wants us to do, it starts in our thinking and then all of us need to use our different gifts in the body of Christ to make it become a reality. And so Paul says here, verse 5, so we, though we are many, are one. We're one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We belong not just to one another, but look at verse 5. It's to Christ. Christ is the head of the body. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. Christ is the shepherd of the sheep. Christ is the conductor of the orchestra. Christ brings us together. Christ binds us together, and Christ will build us up together. Christ brings us together, He binds us together, and He's going to build us up together. Christ and Christ alone connects so many different body parts, even though we're separated by lots of different views. Wonderfully, the body of Christ is never to be uniform, but we are to be united. And isn't it great to be united? Man united this weekend. I needed to get it in somewhere. The body of Christ is not to be uniform, as in we've got to all be the same. That would be awful. But we are to be united. Paul also says this here in Ephesians 
chapter 2, verse 11, he's writing to Jews and Gentiles again in similar circumstances to the church at Ephesus. And he says this. These are some of my favorite verses in Scripture. He reminds the Gentiles about what they used to be. Remember, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, Gentiles, what you were. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You were having no hope, and you were without God in the world. Now, it's not great news, is it? But, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance that he might create, listen to this, in himself one new man in place of the two. Isn't that amazing? So making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and he came and preached peace to you who were near. Only Jesus Christ can do this. It's a miracle. People all over the world today, in every country that you can nearly name, can at least have two warring groups together, and they wonder, how can we make these two different sets of people agree? It'll only ever happen through Christ. That's only where permanent change can be made, because Christ needs to change us, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. But this is where the power comes from. In verse 5, it's one body in Christ and individually members of one another. One writer said this, there is unity in the body of Christ. There's diversity. There's many of us. And there's interdependency members of one another. Unity and diversity must work together, or one will destroy the other. Unity without diversity is uniformity, but diversity without unity is anarchy. The church needs unity and diversity if it's to function in the world. The only thing that can balance unity and diversity is the maturity of Christ. Let the mind of Christ, my Savior, dwell in you from day to day. By his love and his power controlling all what? What I do and say. So our thinking informs our belonging, but thirdly, it informs our serving. We're nearly on the move, verse 6, but he needed to transform our minds. Look at verse 6. He's now getting very specific about our roles. Having gifts or having charisma that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Look at that little phrase. As recipients of grace from Jesus, the servant king, we've been given a grace gift to serve others. 1 Corinthians 7, 7. But each has his own gift from God. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Then into Peter's writings, 1 Peter 4, verse 10, as each has received a gift. Let me just say this simply. 
If you're a Christian, you have a Holy Spirit-given gift. Not talking about human talent, though God can use our human talents in addition to the spiritual gifts He gives us. If you're a Christian, you have been given the spiritual gift. Look what Paul says. It's so simple, and yet it jumped out to me, these four words in verse 6. He says, let us use them. That's quite simple, but, but it's hard sometimes to do based on our circumstances. He says, let us, let us use them. And let me offer a disclaimer. I realize some of you are at different stages in your time here at Hamilton Road. Some of you have only just arrived, and you need to get to know us, and we need to get to know you. Some of you have been hurt at previous churches, and so you bring that baggage with you, and you think, I could never serve again. I could never be part of a church body again. So regardless of the circumstances and the baggage you come with, for good or for ill to this church, let me say this simply. This church needs you, and you need this church. This church needs you, and you need this church. And so Christ, like the skilled conductor, he, he writes the music that this church sings. Christ, the conductor, arranges all the instruments together, all different shapes and sizes and colors. We all make different sounds, but when God puts us all together, we all play the piece of individual music that He has given to us. And when we raise up our, our little sounds, He somehow makes it a wonderful harmony. He's given you a gift. He's given you a role. He's given you a part. We need you and you need us. Regardless of what happened 30 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago or five years ago or five months ago, this church needs you and you need this church. Let me offer you something I've observed over the last decade in church life. I've observed many things and one thing that I have observed is what it looks like for people after they step down from serving in the church. And now on the one hand, it's a delight for me to see people step down and enjoy time of well-earned sabbatical and to reflect and to renew themselves. But I've also seen it as a danger zone at times. Why? Because of what Romans 12 says and 1 Corinthians 12 says and Ephesians 4 says and 1 Peter 4 says. Why? Because we need to be part of of one another. And sometimes when we step down from a ministry and after a period of sabbatical is over, we can start to feel like a spare part. Spare parts often feel isolated and disconnected and sometimes unwanted. Let me encourage you. If you feel like a spare part, this church needs you. You need this church. And this is how God speaks to us. We are members of one another. We are independent, and yet we're interdependent. And now he gives us lots of different gifts. And I notice I thought my voice would have stopped by now. So I don't have time to spend on them like I would like. But look at the different speaking gifts. Prophecy. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. I have lots of notes here in this, but we will come back to it at another time. 
In the New Testament church, there were some who had the gift of passing on direct words from God, and there were others who, in a sense, had a gift of encouraging through their prophetic gift. And Paul says it was to be used in proportion to their faith. It was to be in accordance with Christian doctrine and Scripture. Why? Because there were many false prophets who were saying, thus says the Lord. But in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, but test the spirits, hold fast to that which is good. So if someone comes into the church saying, thus says the Lord, and it doesn't make sense compared to what was revealed in Christian doctrine, he says, reject it. If it's prophecy in proportion to the faith, what about the teacher, verse 7, the one who teaches in his teaching? What about the exhortation gift, the one who exhorts in his exhortation? So in the church, Paul was saying there's lots of different even speaking gifts. And there's a sense in which even sometimes when I'm preaching, I'm there's a sense in which it's small p, I don't mean prophecy as in it's fresh revelation, but it's a word from God to the church that I feel God's laid in my heart. And yet there's a sense in which I'm, I'm teaching as I'm passing on to you the kind of inspired word of God and I'm opening it up for you. And yet there's also a sense in which it's exhortation. It's, it's a word of encouragement. It's a word of challenge to, to get you to think about how you need to change. The one who exhorts in his exhortation but there's also lots of general gifts, lots of wonderful general gifts. Look at this one back again in verse 7. If serving, do it for unto the Lord. It means to wait at a table, to be subservient to people. The Greeks viewed this service as menial and mundane, degrading and dishonorable. But Christ comes and says, the greatest among you is what? It's the servant. wonderful servants here in this church who do it unto the Lord in unseen ways in the backgrounds, but they do it as part of the body of Christ. But what about those who give? Look at verse 8, the one who contributes or the one who gives, do it generously. And do you know who was the most generous man? He was the richest man. Listen to Jesus, his, his words in Matthew 20, verse 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. And what did he give? He gave up his life as a ransom. Remember last week? Therefore, in view of God's mercies, offer up your body as a living sacrifice. Christ gave all for you so that you would also give all for him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, that you might become rich. So then how should we give our lives and our money? 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. This is in our giving. Lastly, in our leading and in our befriending. Verse 8, the one who leads, do it with zeal. Do it like Jesus taking 12 uneducated men to live with him. He did it with zeal. And also the befriending, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And when I read that, I immediately thought of Barnabas. Barnabas in the New Testament, do you know what he was? He was the son of encouragement. One of the best things you can do is be an encourager. Because all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit 
and all of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it's always about giving away. It's never about you. It's never about building up your self-esteem. It's about giving away of self. Barnabas, when he saw God at work, he went right as an encourager. As I close, Prince Harry's tell-all book is intriguingly named Spare. Why? Well, it seems to me he ultimately feels like he's the son who doesn't fit in. He feels like he's the son that will never be understood. And as Prince Charles apparently once said to Diana, you've given me an heir in William, and you've given me a spare in Harry. Now, whatever your views on him, in the body of Christ, there's no spare parts. No matter how isolated and lonely and alone and you don't feel like you fit in the Hamlet Road, let me tell you, you can. In Christ, one body, many members, no spares. Let's pray together.